And what the supermarket did was both centralize all of that, and there was a lot of uh, like revolutions in shipping and containers and packaging that made that possible. Uh, you think of like big advances and you think of the wheel, but really the cardboard box is at the heart of like the advances of the supply chain. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel, here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard. Today in the show, Anna's talking to you, Benjamin Lore, the author of The Secret Life of Groceries. If you haven't checked out the book, I really recommend it. He looks at the American grocery store as this place where lifestyle fantasies are created, where Americans spend on average 2% of their lives, and as this sort of oasis of excess. And he traces some of the most common grocery store items on the shelf back to their origins, whether that's on a fishing boat in Thailand or in a slaughterhouse, etc. Like for us, it's more, I think, 18 to 22 percent. I mean, I'm going to the grocery store like four times a week. Probably. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely there. I mean, I mean, probably like five times a week and then farmer's markets twice a week. But anyways, later on the show, Anna will be talking to author and taste writer Leah Koenig. Yes, and we're actually talking on a subject that's sort of related to grocery shopping. It's about foraging. And in particular, we're going to be talking about how with TikTok and Instagram, foraging has become almost a spectator sport in the last couple of years. Yeah, when that story came up in our pitch meeting, I was like, my goodness, this is something I had not seen. And then I looked at the numbers and it's like millions and millions of views on TikTok for, you know, mushroom hunting. It's like, such a thing. So cool. Here's Anna talking to you, Benjamin Lore. <laughs> Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Ben. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So The Secret Life of Groceries came out in fall 2020, which means you probably finished the book like early 2020? That's right. I'd say end of 2019. It was pretty much wrapped up and, and put to bed. So, so much has happened since then in like the way people grocery shop, obviously in the last couple months. Supply chain has been, like, the buzzword on everyone's minds. People are, like, so used to buying their groceries or ordering their online products, getting them really cheaply and quickly. And now there's sort of, like, a panic about that whole system collapsing. So, I mean, just, like, looking back at all the reporting you did for this book, how predictable was kind of, like, all of these pieces falling apart? Yeah. I mean— not, nothing about COVID was predictable to me as writer, although, of course, uh, infectious disease people have been, like, sounding that alarm. But but the effects that it had on the supply chain were really interesting in that it didn't actually change anything. It just accelerated everything to, like, warp speed. So all of these fragilities that existed, all these ways the supply chain was kind of getting by, maybe through exploitation, maybe relying on a little free labor here or, or un, unpaid for labor, just got exposed as everything accelerated, uh, any weakness. And, you know, you saw that across the board. It, also, in just in terms of how we changed shopping, like the move towards online grocery shopping was well in the cards pre-pandemic. But, you know, two weeks of lockdown later and everybody uh, had shifted to that mode in a new way. For sure. One of the big um, shifts you talk about is sort of like how 
50 and like especially 100 years ago, grocery stores were much more decentralized too. Like people were sort of getting their fruits and vegetables from different places. Oh, even God. like Whole Foods. There wasn't really even a, a, such a thing as a grocery store. There wasn't. There wasn't. A, there wasn't a supermarket. You know, you go back far enough, and there's something called the general store, which is like a place with boots hanging on the wall, some barrels of crackers, some dried fruit, and maybe some fresh produce, um, depending on what's there. But but largely, you would go to another shop. You'd go to your your meat, uh, your butcher. You'd go to your spa for some candy. You'd go to trucks that would have the fresh produce on it uh, or carts rolling through town. And that was the world. It was also a world where as a consumer, you weren't allowed to touch anything. Everything was kind of handed to you by a clerk, you know, in his apron behind the counter. He'd take your list and look it over and fill your basket for you. And what the supermarket did was both centralize all of that. And there was a lot of uh, like revolutions in shipping and containers and packaging that made that possible. Uh, you think of like big advances and you think of the wheel, but really the cardboard box is at the heart of like the advances of the supply chain. All of a sudden we have cheap ways of shipping it. Um, so it, there's all these things centralizing, but it also democratized things in in the way that now customers were presented with many more options than they were ever seen before in one place. And they were allowed to sort through them and touch them and kind of get their hands on things. And that really woke up consumer preferences in a way that didn't exist before. The invention of the cardboard box totally blew my mind because I never really think about that as being a big deal. Like, if you have to make your boxes out of wood, like, what's the problem? (laughs) But you make the point that actually even just branding, even in its most arbitrary sense, like slapping a word, any word onto a box, like sort of creates this sense of brand's loyalty. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like marketing 101, but like differentiation is everything. The difference between a commodity good that is all sluiced together in some mass undifferentiated um, way and and is sold at a single price and, and you know, like Folgers coffee versus some artisanal one farm being sourced to a specific mountain range in Guatemala. That's everything in terms of exciting the consumer's mind and in terms of, of getting us to interact with our products. And and that wasn't possible pre-individual packaging. And the cardboard box is just, I don't know, it's one of those things that you come across when you're doing research, nonfiction, and it's just a pleasure because there's a lot of technology in the cardboard box. It's, it you know, corrugated is two planes of cardboard smushed or paperboard smushed together and then like cathedral arches inside of them that give it the structure. And so it's this beautiful thing that's created very cheaply but has all this rigidity just to this like advance in in terms of, of smushing things together. Uh, and then it wakened woke this whole world of uh, of quick and easy delivery. Do you remember, this reminds me of like at some point in the 90s, maybe those like little snack size boxes of cereal that you could like break the top off and then like it sort of reconfigured itself into a little bowl. (laughs) Totally. Like little poppable. um, Sadly, I feel like I grew up on those. One of uh, sort of like the main characters of the book um, was Joe Cologne, who was the founder of Trader Joe's in the 60s. And he actually just passed away last year. And this year, um, he actually has a memoir that has been published posthumously. He seems like such a larger-than-life character, and he was so influential in sort of like 
what the modern grocery store looks like. What was it like spending time with him and like getting to know him and sort of getting inside his head as this like pioneer? Yeah, absolutely. Joe is he's a fascinating guy and he was he was somebody who was both extremely approachable. Uh, you know, his wife at one point he says like Joe is the one thing you have to know about him, he's not a snob. He gives everybody equal time. And sometimes that pisses off people who think they deserve more time. But he was also just possessed this fantastic brain. I mean, his employees would tell me stories of him like being able to add up lists of columns in their head quicker than they could read them. Or he would have uh, tracks of like kind of jurisprudence and legislative decision around the lobbying interests in the grocery industries memorized down to like chapter and verse and wow. he would cite these to regulators who came in and they you know they would have to then stumble back and and look through the books and and he really applied that intellect to groceries which nobody had done before him groceries is like a stodgy business it was like it's a found like a lot of people who worked their way up um, in the 19th century from like shopkeepers to small owners. Um, then they, you know, it because it's such an important structure in the local community, they become kind of these feudal things where they employ a, a su surprising number of people and, and the community has a lot of touch points with them because they're going to them very regularly. But that doesn't really encourage much innovation. It becomes this very steady business um, where you're not making tons of money, but you have a very kind of regular guaranteed income. And Joe walked into this with no background in groceries and just applied his brain to it. And he, and he really treated it like, like humanism, looking at the grocery store and thinking, like, what does this say about society? Like, what's going to change in the world? And how's that going to make people buy food? <laughs> and it's a weird curiosity, but he, he did, I mean, he did great things. Uh, you know, one of the founding impulses for Trader Joe's was the development of the 747, which Joe recognized almost immediately would democratize the cost of travel to Europe and make people want to eat the food that they had tasted on these trips that were otherwise completely inaccessible to them. And, you know, also the GI Bill hitting a new generation in Vietnam. He saw that and he was like, these people are going to go to college. They're going to get a new vocabulary and they're going to want to use that vocabulary when they shop groceries. Now, I would never think that logical chain. And if I did, I would probably forget about it and think of it as a lark. But he he did all that kind of like complex foresight and analysis and then went and founded a grocery chain based on those <laughs> principles. And so it's just pretty wonderful to watch a mind like that work. Absolutely. I mean, how did the tiki aesthetic come into play? Because Trader Joe's, I do think of it as like touching on all of those qualities and those sort of like lifestyle values that people have. But then like everyone who works there wears Hawaiian shirts. Like where did that come ab about? Yeah. I mean, he was pretty straightforward. I mean, Tiki had a moment, first of all, that we should For acknowledge sure. that we are now experiencing like the fifth revival of that moment. Uh, you know, but uh, as all things come back. But Joe is pretty influenced by the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland at that time. And that was a ride. And I think it, it does connect the dots. Like Tiki in its first iteration wasn't purely cheesy. It was like exotic in the way that now it's like people put scare quotes around it and it's not like, you know, it it represented an expansion of people's minds to these places they hadn't gone. But it was this blurry kind of colonial expansion where like Amazonia was kind of like Africa, even though they're on different continents. And people were really excited about those new things. And Joe 
clicked onto that. He also clicked onto the idea that he wanted the grocery store to be like a fun and leisure. Like, uh, and I keep remember him saying that the phrase fun and leisure. Um, and finally, like one of his cornerstone insights into Trader Joe's was booze. He realized that people who liked health food and people who liked alcohol were fundamentally kind of on the same radar beam, in his words, as consumers, meaning that they wanted like u- unique things. They cared a lot about taste. They cared a lot, a lot about self-care and they, or they cared a lot about what was going into their body. And, and even though those are totally schizophrenic <laughs> needs like health <laughs> health and uh, and booze, the consumer model was the same. So he wanted to build a store that kind of had an umbrella that encased those. And Tiki was like this thing that was just waiting for him. Plus, sorry, <laughs> I'm just remembering, you know, he, he was in San Diego or near San Diego, which was a marine town, a port town. And there was all this cheap marine artifacts lying around. So he would literally stock the first Trader Joe's in Pasadena by going down there and just picking up junk from from the local docks and then sanding it down, fiberglassing it, and that became the fixtures. So it's also a cost-cutting technique. And that's kind of wow. Joe's brain. Like, it's like, how do we connect all these dots and then make it into a place that uh, seems s- seamless and like a whole? I love all the theater that goes into groceries like you you even write about um like a a world's fair type congress in italy in like the 50s right? yeah 1956 in rome it was the first grocery store that ever was outside of the u.s so the u.s uh, groceries the american is the blue jeans white t-shirt right jazz and no one in the world had seen anything like it till 1956 the usda puts a small and i mean really small 2000 SKU, which is stock keeping, stop keeping units, which is like the individual items in a grocery store. 2,000 is small because typical grocery store has 35,000. Know, the big ones have like 120,000. Anyway, they set up this tiny shop in Rome in the 1950s, 1956, and the Italians lose their mind. Like <laughs> literally the press is talking about women running up and down the aisles screaming, this must be heaven <laughs> in Italian. And the Pope makes an announcement from the Holy See talking about like the, the, the beauty of the grocery store. And it's just <laughs> nobody had seen anything like it. Uh, and it's just an amazing because we take it for granted at this point. Now we have all these options at our fingertips that, you know, the greatest kings, emperors could dream of. And, and we're like, oh, this is a chore. Right. <laughs> How can I? offload this on my partner. This is a, so it's a pretty amazing. And, and in the book, that was really the central tension that I wanted to draw out was like, how can I capture this miracle of a system, but also show the price tags that are attached to it in terms of human suffering and, and cost, because those are quite there too. Right, for sure. And um, there's a line in the book about sort of like in America, the closer you look at food, the more disgusted you are by it because- Behind almost every product that we interact with, like there's something, there's some part of the story that hasn't been told, really. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, and and I guess what I wanted to get at with that um, particular line is this notion that yes, when you start digging into food, you encounter real ugliness very quickly. And in many ways, we kind of carry that with us now as educated consumers. I mean, the book has this like exhaustive. Uh, expose of shrimp. And when I would tell people and I was writing about it, people would be like, oh, so I have to add shrimp to that list of things I can't eat anymore. And they would say that with an eye roll. Uh, And that's all true. And I guess what I 
wanted to do with the book was to show how much of the, that digging process and how much of that disgusting process was actually parts of ourselves and really connect that back to the decisions that we're making at checkout. And that these are not – this is a grocery is not an industry where there are extremely greedy, multimillion-dollar profiteering companies that are like tightly controlling things. It's a high-margin, highly competitive – I'm sorry, a low-margin, highly competitive industry where stores are clawing for any advantage they can get. And they're fighting for consumer loyalty and and, and trying to maximize consumer experience at every corner. And those result in cost-cutting that trickles down the train and creates a lot of ugliness. But it's it's a little unfair to to both remain horrified at all that and remain distanced from them and say, well, these bad actors in the supply chain who I would act nothing like if I was given the choice of these greedy, faceless international corporations are doing these horrible things, but they're doing it in our our names largely. And because we would go shop somewhere else if we if we weren't getting those deals. For sure. And it's not it's never as simple as just ruling out shrimp or just ruling <laughs> no, out a not. particular candy bar. Trader Joe's, you kind of talk about as being like this disruptor to the grocery industry in the 60s. Today, like there are so many companies that see themselves as disruptors, tech companies, del- like grocery delivery companies, uh, online grocery services. What do you think which one of these do you think is like actually sort of innovating in a positive way? Or and is there really such thing as like positive disruption in this industry at this point? Oh god, there's a lot of room for positive disruption and I think there you know, I don't have the crystal ball that Joe had. Um but I do think the system that we use currently for like certifying things uh, and all the health claims, all the ethical claims, whether something is fair trade, free, um, you know, no slave labor, rainforest friendly. That system is pretty broken at the moment. It, it, it's, an, it's a non-functional in, an, in what I would call a, um, an effective manner. It's, it's based on audits. Those audits are paid for by the manufacturer. So there's enormous conflicts of interest. They're snapshots of, of moments in time. So they're not particularly good at sniffing out anything that's non-empirical, like trying to figure out if an employee withheld wages an employer withheld wages six months ago when you visit the plant uh, in a, a place where you don't speak the language uh, for one day is basically an impossible situation. Uh, and yet that is the system that we rely on for for all those claims. Uh, and I think there's going to be tremendous amounts of innovation there. They're not going to look like innovation in the sense of, of being splashy. I think they're going to look like, well, how can we lean on the expertise of the workers who are actually doing this work and who are actually connected to the conditions that they exist in? How can we amplify their voices? How can we protect their voices when they speak out and build that into the system in ways that it echoes loud enough so that the consumer is hearing it or that the, the certifi- certification uh, regimes are, are hearing them? Like it doesn't have to be an auditor coming in with a clipboard looking at things in a snapshot way. How do we make the worker themselves carrying that clipboard. There are big hurdles in doing that. It's not an easy, it's, it's much easier said than done. And there are a lot of incentives that keep the current system in place. It's, it's $50 billion per year industry. Um, and it makes the consumer feel pretty good about things when you don't look at it too closely. But uh, that's, a, that's a place where I think we're going to see a lot of shifting and change. One of the things that I saw happening just like in my neighborhood in Brooklyn during the pandemic 
was so many uh, restaurants and grocery stores, I mean, really restaurants, like, starting to sell ingredients and, like, common grocery items, which was cool because, I mean, A, like, they had access to certain wholesalers that, like, consumers don't often have access to. Um, but it also kind of created a nice little sense of community of kind of, like, do going out and doing your shopping and going to this place because, you know, they have good canned tomatoes and going to the next place for the next item. So, yeah, I wonder if you think that that shift might catch on, like sort of 100%. these smaller, more localized grocery Yes. Yeah. I think one of my favorite examples of that is something in, in my neighborhood, uh, Fort Defiance, which was this like lovely, cute bar food restaurant that kind of operated for a long time. But that like exquisite taste it was just like great decor, great tiki, uh, tiki drinks. And during the pandemic, they pivoted 100 percent. Now they're the Fort Defiance general store. And essentially they took all of this knowledge from the restaurant world all of this like ability to look at customers and think what do they want that they don't know that they want and apply that to the grocery space. Uh, and, you know, the, the guy who who operates Fort Defiance is obviously someone who's highly attuned to that. And the general store that he opened, of course, it's like a throwback, but it's just full of all these uh, in, you know, ingredients, you know, glassware, a, a, a whole cr a motley crew of things that are that are, you know, a pleasure to shop for. And so I think that shift is real because it's drawing on people's expertise who are much more attuned to what customers want than the typical grocery buyer who is essentially playing a data game. Like grocery buyers don't think about taste as a, as a first order or second order technique when they're when they're thinking about what they want to buy, grocery buyers are thinking about what can I get the most margin off of or, or how can I get the most trade spend out of this producer to juice my bottom line. They're not thinking about what tastes the best or what's going to make the customer the happiest. Yeah, it sort of makes the argument that maybe we do kind of want less choice in a grocery <laughs> shopping experience. Like maybe there is something to having a smaller, more curated yeah, I mean, it's just that's where we get all schizophrenic because we kind of want it all. We want low price. We want high quality. And those two things don't go together. We want like lots of choice, but we want those choices to be well curated. And it's like, eh. But I think, you know, the way we're answering that is is through a combination of like online taking over a lot of these kind of replenishment goods, the things that we can just buy without that voyage of discovery and and shifting that focus there. And th those are going to shift into more and more commodity-like goods. And then there's going to be these other smaller footprint stores that hopefully, like Fort Defiance, fill the gaps and, and keep that, you know, Trader Joe's like voyage of discovery to new products. One last question, uh, which is just that in my experience as a journalist, grocery store chains can be very tight-lipped about like who they speak to who they sort of like give insight into their operations. Did you run up against some of like these challenges of just getting people to talk to you candidly? And like, how how did you get around that? Oh, my God. I mean, grocery is a claustrophobically secretive industry. I spoke to a guy who was a uh, former buyer and he was like a freelance. He had he reinvented himself as like a supply chain kind of solution guy. And he was doing 
blind consultancies with manufacturers because they wouldn't tell him who they were or the product that they were hiring him to consult on because they were too afraid he would spread their secrets to a competitor, which is like madness that you're paying someone and not giving them the information they need to do their job. And this type of blind consultancy was a regular thing for him, right? And that is just like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I mean, finding a... um, a broker to shadow on rounds was enormously difficult. Uh, finding buyers who would talk on the record was basically impossible. I found like two who would speak on the record. I found lots of people who would speak off record. And, and in fact, many ways, it is a secrecy that's based on the fact that a lot of these guys feel like they've been burned by bad press and by people who don't understand the complexities that they're dealing with and make them into bad actors when in fact they're dealing with a massive system that's extremely complex and there are no real good answers or, or certainly no simple answers that they haven't thought of. Um, and and so often they would be very effusive when talking off record, but on record they would just button up and, and it was it was a pretty difficult industry to get my foot in. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Joe Coulomb talks about he, he like gives the advice to just get a part time job at a grocery store or apprentice if you can. And that's like the most you're going to learn. Um, and you, you kind of did that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that wasn't just Joe's advice. I mean, he didn't give me that advice. That's what he did when he, he left Stanford Business School and it was asked to run a small chain. And, and his first action was to go find what he thought was the best run independent grocery store in town and just apprentice there on weekends and learn everything that he could. Um, and, and he said that was you know better than any business school education. And yeah, I mean, for me, I did nothing like that in the sense of getting business insights out of it. But I didn't feel like it could do this book without working in a grocery store. So I worked at a Whole Foods. I worked uh, at a couple other chains actually as well, um, just so I had a physical understanding of what the work is. And and that's like most of my writing. Like it's like trying to get as close. I spend a lot of time with a truck driver driving around the country. Um, I follow a food entrepreneur on her rounds. Um, you know, I, I go to Thailand and I'm actually like climbing on these boats that are used to traffic migrants because I guess I just trying to get as close to the source as possible so that I can write with it with something that feels to me like authenticity, at least gives me the confidence enough to write about it that way. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. The book is The Secret Life of Groceries, and it's out in paperback now. Thank you so much for having me. I'm in the studio today with Leah Koenig, the author of six cookbooks, including The Jewish Cookbook and Modern Jewish Cooking. Leah is also a journalist who's written for The New York Times, New York Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and many more. We're here to talk about a story you wrote for Taste a few months ago about a strange new habit you picked up during the pandemic. What was that habit? Um, Well, I started to um, forage for wild edibles from my couch. Um, I basically fell into a rabbit hole of the kind of wild world of TikTok and and Instagram um, foragers who kind of post their journeys on um, the Internet. And um, it's it's really wildly entertaining stuff. This was a phenomenon that I wasn't really even necessarily aware of until you brought the idea to taste. 
Do you remember the first video you watched about foraging that sort of like pulled you into this whole world? I don't I don't know if it was exactly the first one, but the one that sticks out to me was um, a video from this woman um, named Alexis Nicole Nelson, who is also goes by Black Forager. And she posted a video about um, Bradford pears, which are a type of pear tree that I guess grows pretty commonly in, um, you know, suburb, suburb, suburban areas and particularly where she lives in Ohio. And what's interesting about them is that they, first of all, that there's like fruiting, you know, pear trees just kind of where you wouldn't expect them, but also they have a very particular particular smell to their flowers. Um, and it's not a very good smell. Um, I'm not going to go into it because it's a little obscene, but, <laughs> <laughs> but what pulled me in about it was, A, just kind of realizing that this was out there and the kind of thing that you walk by and don't even notice. And two, that she was just so personable and uh, so excited about what she was doing that it just completely drew me in. Um, And I've been a fan of hers ever since. And then it kind of grew from there. Yeah. And you've followed along with so many other TikTok and Instagram foragers. Do you think there's anything in particular about the pandemic that made you sort of gravitate towards this whole internet world? Yeah, I mean, partly it is we were all sort of looking for escapes during the early pandemic. We were all holed up in our houses or our apartments. You know, I have two small children and my husband and I kind of share a very, very small apartment with them. And I just felt like there were people on top of me all the time. And I just needed something to escape with. You know, I studied environmental studies in college and kind of loved going on hikes. And we were doing more of that in person, too. But watching people forage on the Internet, uh, on TikTok and Instagram, um, was just a way to kind of burst out of that kind of trap that I felt like I was in. And then the more I watched, the more I realized I was actually learning things. Um, I remember I watched one video or, you know, Instagram clip where one of the foragers talks about like what poison ivy looks like when it's young, um, which I had never thought of. You know, obviously plants look different depending on what type of, you know, what time of the cycle they're in. But my family went on a hike and I was like, oh, my gosh, like that's some young poison ivy. Stay away. And like I, I could have been wrong, like I could have misidentified it, but I felt like I had actually gained like a kernel of real useful knowledge. And that just hooked me even more. That's incredible. What does young poison ivy look like? Can you remember? Um, yeah, it's it's small, obviously, and it's kind of a more, I think, a reddish color rather than the green it, it gets later. I am certainly not an expert, but, uh, you know, it, it still has the little, like, sawtooth, but it's just kind of more delicate and, and red. Um, and so you know, I actually, like, while we were on our hike, I pulled up the clip and I was like, oh, is it the same? And was kind of like referencing and it it felt uh, really cool to do that. Yeah, totally. Like solving a real world puzzle. Totally. You also write about Alexis Nicole Nelson sort of initially going viral with a video where she walked around her own neighborhood and gave people a sense of what they could find just like on their block growing that's actually edible and that could they could get for free, basically. Has has watching some of these videos changed your relationship to your own neighborhood? Like, are you starting to see edible things that you didn't notice before? Yeah, definitely. I think what she did and what a lot of these foragers did that was so, made it feel so 
compelling for the moment that we were in was to kind of empower people um, at a moment where we all felt really disempowered, right? There was no toilet paper there, you know, in the stores, there was no flour, there was no yeast. Like we all sort of felt like, like the systems that we kind of used as safeguards to keep us feeling secure were crumbling around us. And so here she was offering this alternative that was free, that was, you know, right around you that you didn't really, um, you had to have some skill for, but it was a skill that she was sharing. Um, and I think in the first video that she says she got kind of virally, you know, got viral attention for, um, she literally says, like, are you afraid to go outside right now? Or are you afraid to, like, go to your grocery store? Like, here are some things you can find. And I think that really tapped into people's um, sense of pandemic panic and kind of offered like the soothing balm of like the world will provide if you just know how to look. And that for me has extended a little bit into my everyday life. I grew up not really foraging with one exception, which is um, my dad um, would walk us down. I live in, I live, grew up in Chicago and there are these like extensive alley systems, you know, behind the homes. And for some reason there were a lot of mulberry trees um, so we would go walking every summer and like find the mulberries that were falling down and collect them. And I remember getting like my my lips and my fingers stained purple. And it was um, like a really like, but it was less about foraging and more about just doing something fun with my dad. But now I walk around and I'm like, oh, there's a, um, a chestnut. Uh, you know, I didn't know what that looked like when it still has its like spiky green um, or brown outside on it, depending on the time of season or like, oh, there's a, a wild grass that like maybe is garlic or something, garlic grass or something like that. So it's definitely um, shifted my perspective of uh, it's made me more curious when I walk around. And some of these ingredients, hilariously, are so hard to buy in stores if you wanted to. Like, there have been times when I've run to Whole Foods and Dean and DeLuca looking for some specific herb. Mulberries, like I think of, like, they're kind of hard to find in stores. So it's fun that some of these are actually available if you know where to look. For sure. I mean, ramps are the, like, most obvious one, right? Like, you people spend many, many dollars a pound to get ramps at the farmer's market. But if you know where to go and you know how to harvest them properly, they're like, they're free. <laughs> yeah. And even in cities like in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, I know that there are people out there doing foraging for mushrooms, for maybe like green garlic. Yeah. Weeds like that. Yeah. There's this one guy named, uh, he calls himself Wild Man, Steve Brill. <laughs> He's a character. He actually um, was sort of, I would call him like the, the the dad or grandfather of like the modern foraging movement that we're seeing now on TikTok exploding. Um, he, in the early 1980s, got arrested for foraging in Central Park. Wow. Um, yeah. And he found a way to like, turn that into a media frenzy and there were like front page stories about it and they ended up basically being like okay you can forage and you can lead tours to do it and like <laughs> he's been leading foraging tours in Central Park and Prospect Park and other places around um, New York City basically for the last 30-40 years and I interviewed him for this story and he said that during the pandemic you know, he initially closed down when we were things were first getting started. But once he opened back up in the summer of 2020, like he he was slammed. People just really wanted to get out there, really wanted to, 
you know, do something that felt safe and where they felt like they were learning a, a life skill that was helpful um, and just connect with people outside. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that it was not just on TikTok. It was also happening um, in real life. Yeah. And I think like with so many of our sort of supply systems collapsing, there was a little bit more interest in the survivalist aspect of it. Like what happens if, you know, we have to figure some of these things out on our own? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this didn't make it into this particular piece that I wrote for Taste, but there are other sort of survival skill TikToks and Instagram accounts that are also exploding, like how to tie you know, rope knots and how to um, fish and how to like do like urban bushcraft and like all sorts of stuff that like, you know, people just find fascinating. But also I feel like it, like I said before, like it just calms them down to kind of build skills, even if they're vicarious or like, you know, just through osmosis, like learning things that will help them because we all sort of feel like not just the pandemic, but with climate change and with everything happening, like it feels good to kind of have some life skills that you can turn to. Totally. Do you think after all of the reading and watching that you've done that you would be able to survive in the wilderness? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say that. Maybe maybe for a couple of days at least. But All right. A couple of days is better than a couple of hours. Totally. Totally. Leah, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. It was so fun. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>